Thank you, Sayer, for Psalm 12. I want everyone to know that there was no collusion at all between Sayer and me this morning. I wish that you would consider right now, very soberly, what I opened with this morning about the Word of God, not knowing what psalm you were going to present. As I thought about it later, listening to you, I remembered that you had told me weeks ago. But until you open it to Psalm 12, I had no recollection of that whatsoever, and I certainly didn't last night in our preparation. And I was totally gripped that I needed to open with the Word of God from those passages I gave you, and then Sayer gets up with Psalm 12, all glory to God and His Holy Spirit for moving in our midst. He's the one Spirit of the body of Jesus Christ, and we are the various part, body part members of that body. Thank you, Brother David, for your prayer, and thank you, Cutler family, for leading us in our singing this morning. Let us open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, and it's few verses, only 12 of them, gives us the grand promises of Messiah's reign and that they are for all kinds of men. As David, our brother, prayed just moments ago, if they are righteous. What we are going to see is that character is everything, conduct is everything on how God measures men. He does not measure them by their nationality or their economic ability, their educational level, or their intellect, or their race, or their culture. He measures them by their character. And he's changed our character. And he's, he's made us godly by the regenerating power of the Holy Ghost. And then the chapter closes with Israel to be ruined. So there is a change in theme as we get to the end of this chapter, a great change in theme from the grand promises of chapters 52, 3, 4, and 5 to what we have before us. Isaiah 56, the grand promises of Messiah's reign are for all kinds of men chosen by their righteous character. And then Israel was to be ruined and their pastors are picked on and indicted and condemned by God for being lazy, voluptuous, luxurious, and not caring for the flock or the truth of God's word. If you look at the 12 verses in front of you, just as our young brother did with Psalm 12, verses 1 and 2 are an exhortation to godliness for the coming reign of Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 3 through 5 are comfort to eunuchs that they have a place in Messiah's kingdom because they didn't in Moses' nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 23.1 cuts out any man from ever entering the congregation of the Lord that is wounded in his stones. Verses 6 through 8 are comfort to Gentiles that they have a place in God's temple and in God's house. And for that, we should be very thankful. And if you wanted key words for the first eight verses of this chapter, it would be the words that close out verse 7, where it says that the Lord's house of prayer would be for all people. Because that right there summarizes the lesson that is in the middle of this chapter, and that's the inclusive nature of the church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Verses 9 through 12 are different 
in that they are a warning of Israel's ruin as God calls all the ravenous and wild beasts of the earth to come and devour the nation. And he indicts the pastors for being such a lazy breed of non-profit, worthless ministers that didn't bark like the watchdogs they should have been. As we think about the context leading up to 56, let's remember, Isaiah chapter 52 introduced gospel blessings in general and Messiah in particular at the end. If you'll remember, there were three verses at the end of Isaiah 52 that introduced Messiah. So we had gospel blessings and the context since we've entered the 50s of Isaiah is so much about the coming kingdom of Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse, I mean, chapter 53 detailed the justifying work of Jesus on the cross and told us about God sharing rewards with him and him sharing the rewards with us. Chapter 54 described the Jewish church exploding. It's just from last Sunday. Hopefully you can remember. It would break forth and break out left and right and all over the place the church was going to explode in growth. The Jewish church would explode in growth with, with a small elect remnant of Jews and then many Gentiles from the four quarters of the earth. Chapter 55 described the gospel feast of fat things that are ours if we diligently hearken and hear and come to God in the gospel of our Lord. It described to us the leader and commander of our kingdom the Messianic kingdom, the church of God, the kingdom of God, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it promised his certain forgiveness for us, abundant pardon, if we will turn from our wicked ways and repent before him. This chapter is different. Great change in theme, especially as we get to the end, as the righteous are exhorted and the wicked are warned. I hope that the four parts to this chapter that I've given you will help you understand it and look at these little bite-sized chunks that the Lord's given us that are different from each other. In verses 1 and 2, an exhortation to godliness in light of the coming kingdom, and then comfort to eunuchs, then comfort to Gentiles, and then no comfort but warning for God's ministers because Israel would be destroyed. The timing of this chapter, we are going to say because of its location in the book of Isaiah, and for a number of other factors that I don't want to get into right now, will be Isaiah backing up from, the, from Messiah's kingdom to the warning that he had to give the people that he was ministering to about the coming Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. Because remember, the 40s were about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and the people of God being captive in that city, and then Cyrus the Persian freeing them. The first half of the book ended with chapters 36 through 39, telling us the historical version of Assyria being passed. So the first half of the book that runs through chapter 39, a great deal of it was about Sennacherib, Shalmaneser, the Assyrians, and Hezekiah's deliverance from them. Then it moved to Babylon, and... Isaiah lived under the reign of at least four kings because they're identified, but then Hezekiah died rather early at 54, 
and his son Manasseh began to reign at 12, and Manasseh's reign was terrible. Manasseh was the worst king Judah ever had, and he was Hezekiah's son. But Isaiah is now warning, and we're going to see some things in this chapter in 57 that apply to Manasseh's reign, the cruelty of it, and the righteous men and merciful men perishing by persecution and murder. Manasseh filled the city of Jerusalem with blood from one end to the other. And I could, we could have read 1 Kings 21 last evening in preparation or other chapters about Manasseh so that you would have a better feel, but I wanted you to read the things that I did give you because they're more valuable. After Manasseh, there was Ammon for a couple of years, and then Josiah. And Josiah was one of the four great kings of Judah, but God killed him, took him out early, so that he wouldn't have to see what God was going to do to his sons and his sons' sons and the rest of the nation for Manasseh's sins. And, and you should know that about Josiah. Josiah went to battle when he shouldn't have, and God killed him there, but God had told him early in his repentance, because Josiah repented like few other kings ever. Let me put it this way. The Bible says that Josiah turned to the Lord better than any other king ever had. And so God had mercy on him and came and told him, you're going to die early so that you won't have to see all that I have to do to this nation. Because he was so convicted by the reading of God's word when it was found in the ruins of the temple from Manasseh. So I hope that introduction is enough. Let's get into the lessons of Isaiah 56 and its 12 verses. The first two verses, an exhortation to godliness for Messiah's reign. Let me read them to you. Thus saith the Lord, keep ye judgment and do justice for my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Amen and amen. These are the preserved words of God. We believe them. They're pure and they're perfect. And hopefully they'll correct us and instruct us today. As I've just explained in the introduction, the, the prophet is looking forward and he has been dealing with the reign of Messiah, which means the New Testament era. I hope no one is confused by my use of the word Messiah. Maybe I shouldn't use it quite, quite as often and use the word Christ, which is the New Testament translation of Messiah. And Christ, you know who he is. He's Jesus, our Lord. But the prophet looking forward to the New Testament era of Jesus Christ, wants to remind us now that there's a character to prepare for that kingdom because it was near, from the prophetic view, it was near. In the 4,000 years of the world's history, when Jesus arrived, our prophet Isaiah here is only 650 years out or so from the Lord arriving. And so it was near to come in the way the Bible uses expressions like that. Because look at in verse 1, the second half, my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. And that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's through the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross, and that's through the ministry and preaching of John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles. Because we've had these words before in the last 10 chapters of Isaiah leading up to this, and it's, it's the gospel. It's coming. The kingdom of Messiah is coming. God is going to reveal himself in a very different way to his people, and they needed to be prepared for it. And the preparation in verse 1 is short and simple enough. Keep ye judgment and do justice, thus saith the Lord. Jehovah, the one God of Israel, which is represented by that all-capitalized Lord, exhorted his people to keep judgment and do justice in preparation for Messiah. Judgment, as it's often used in the Bible, means to be fair, right, and wise. As when we use the terms, he used good judgment. That means he used good sense, he used wisdom. He thought it through, and he was right, wise, and fair in his dealings. That's to keep ye judgment. We should be fair, right, equitable, true, honest, and integrity before God, doing everything with others in our lives in an honest, upright way. That's keep ye judgment. It doesn't mean keep on punishing everyone. We often look at the word judgment and think it means punishment, but the exhortation here isn't to punish everyone or to punish everything. It's to be righteous and fair, honest and good. Judgment is what is doing what is honest and right and wise in all of life's situations. There are so many examples of this. If you can hold your hand or your place at Isaiah 55, you can look back at Isaiah chapter 1 and we'll find out that Israel wasn't very, they weren't very good at judgment and they didn't have very much justice. Isaiah 1 and verse 17, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. I'm using this verse as one of many verses for our internal dictionary as to what words mean. We're supposed to compare spiritual things with spiritual. And that is 1 Corinthians 2.13. And the things there that are to be compared are the words. Comparing spiritual words with spiritual words. So watch this verse define judgment for us. When it says judge the fatherless, does that mean we're to look for orphans or those whose fathers have died and punish them? When it says judge the fatherless, it means to treat them right and fair and to protect them out of goodness. So learn to do well. You can understand that. Seek judgment. That's to do right things. Relieve the oppressed. That's to do judgment. Not to punish the oppressed, but to save the oppressed from their oppressors. Judge the fatherless. That's to treat them right and to protect them and help them plead for the widow. That's, that's the word of God. That is how wonderful the word of God is. It's been purified seven times and very pure so that we can compare its words and find definitions internal to the Bible. Look at verse 21. How is the faithful city become an harlot? Exclamation point. It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. See, you have judgment defined there. Judgment is defined as righteousness 
and it's the opposite of murder. It's protecting and helping people. Back to Isaiah 56. That was a little exercise in Bible study. I have a whole string of other verses just from the book of Isaiah. We could go elsewhere in the Bible to find out what judgment means, but that should be sufficient. Doing justice is like keeping judgment. And sometimes the Bible, in order to emphasize a point, will have a couple of phrases or more meaning pretty much the same thing. Just like the second half of this verse. It says, my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Well, those are, the, those are two different words for the same event. That's the coming era of the Lord Jesus Christ. His salvation is righteousness, and his righteousness is how he saved. It's describing the same thing. And so justice and judgment go together, and they are a pair in the Bible and often used together. Judgment and justice, often put together. But to do justice is very similar to keeping judgment. Israel lacked in justice or equity like they did in judgment. But the Lord Jesus Christ has a kingdom that is filled with justice because of him being our leader. To do justice is to do justly, to be fair, equitable, and right. So that is verse 1. The reason he gave for them to do these things was to prepare a people for the Lord. Do you remember John the Baptist's ministry? The Old Testament closes out in the last couple of verses of Malachi 4, and I did want you to read Malachi 4 yesterday. I had so many chapters I wanted you to read in preparation for today. But it closes out with, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, that he may turn the hearts of the fathers to children and the children of the fathers. And in Luke 1.17, that is defined by the angel to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, as making ready a people prepared for the Lord. Because for us to be ready for Messiah to appear, and I'm speaking to us as if we were Jews, early in the first century, if we were to be ready for him, we have to have our relationships right. We have to have shown judgment and justice in our relationships by treating everyone fairly. And that's what John the Baptist came for, and he did it. Now, we aren't early in the first century. We are early in the 21st century. 2020. And we should be making ourselves ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 14 tells us so clearly that he's going to melt this earth and burn it up with fervent heat. And everything we know is going to be melted and disappear. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And seeing that these things are going to come to pass, it says we ought to be blameless, waiting for his appearing. And so while these two verses were addressed by Isaiah to his immediate audience and to Jews leading up to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can learn a lesson from it. And that is we need to be ready for the coming of the Lord. He is coming, and he is going to come for those with good character and conduct. If there is anyone without good character and good conduct that is his, that's between him and them in the book of life. But we certainly aren't going to make any presumption on that possibility. We want to live righteously. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, holding your place there. I want to do justice to this lesson for our benefit. 
2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, describe the new heaven and the new earth, and that everything we know is going to be dissolved. Verse 11, seeing then, 2 Peter 3, 11, seeing then that all these things, everything you work for, everything you try to keep neat, clean, and want it to be the best, God doesn't care about it, and he's going to dissolve it all. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So verses 11 and 14 get the point across very clearly. What Isaiah preached in Isaiah 56, 1 and 2 is something we ought to apply to our lives right now in the year 2020 that we will have a life of godly character and conduct waiting for the coming of our Lord. Back to Isaiah chapter 56. Verse 2. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Let me deal with this verse quickly. Blessed is a man with good character. Good character has been defined one way in verse 1. Keep ye judgment and do justice. Character is defined another way in verse 2. And that is God's worship and your personal lifestyle. The worship is keeping the Sabbath from polluting it. To pollute the Sabbath was to do anything on the Sabbath that wasn't allowed. And remember, Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet preaching to Old Testament people, and so he uses a synecdoche for all of their Old Testament worship being the Sabbath day. It's not just that they had to keep the Sabbath and they could do anything else that they wanted to, like have idols. It's a synecdoche, because so is the word hand in the last part of verse 2, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Can your eyes get you into trouble? Can your mind get you into trouble, your heart? Or is it just hands? Hand is synecdoche. That is part of a thing for the whole thing. When a captain says over the loudspeaker, all hands on deck, what comes running up and down ladders to be there on the deck on an aircraft carrier? Hands? Yes, if you understand the synecdoche. All the sailors come. They bring their two legs with them too. And they have a head attached. And the other hand. Because it says, keepeth his hand. Well, does that mean I can... Okay, that's enough on the English lesson. I want you to understand that English lesson because when it says, keepeth the Sabbath, that's not the only commandment that God had, but it's a synecdoche, part of it for the whole. The whole worship of God and the whole of your life. Do you know that God has two commandments, the love of God and the love of others? Do you know God's table of ten commandments can be broken into four that pertain to him, one through four, and number four is the Sabbath, and five through ten pertain to others? Honor thy father and thy mother is number five. And so there's two tables of the law. And very a prophet is able to do this in just a few words. And so I want you to understand verse two, blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it. And that is the same thing, men. Blessed are the men that do this, whether they're called the man 
or the Son of Man. It doesn't make any difference. It's a common duplication and repetition in the Bible of men. Blessed are men, blessed are women, blessed are youth, blessed are children that do this and lay hold of it and will not let go. That they are going to maintain the proper worship of God and that they are going to maintain a holy life. Okay, that's it. That's the first lesson. An exhortation to godliness in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the first time. We should look at these two verses and want to do judgment and justice and keep his worship and live holy lives for his second coming. And so we move to lesson number two, verses three through five. I read Isaiah 56, verses three through five. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs, that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house, and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Amen and amen. The lesson number two of Isaiah 56 is God's comfort for eunuchs that they would have a place in the New Testament church and kingdom of Jesus Christ, unlike Moses, because Jesus would abolish Moses' religion as far as its ceremonial aspects. Now let me, sh I've already referred to it. Deuteronomy 23.1 sounds like this. Deuteronomy 23.1. He that is wounded in the stones. Those are a man's testicles. He that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy member cut off. I'll assume you can figure that one out shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. There it is. This is rather worthless information, so you may disregard it. But when I was ordained, and the congregation was allowed to ask me any question that they wished, a man in the back that never said a word to anyone raised his hand and asked for my interpretation of Deuteronomy 23.1. How is that for brotherly kindness? We can deal with that text later at a different time. Don't be distracted by it. What we want right here is the lesson in verses 3 through 5 that God has comforting words for those that through the Old Testament couldn't be part of the congregation. They couldn't enter into the congregation of the Lord for 1,500 years from Mount Sinai to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord has comfort for them. And I hope that you love this little section here. Verse 3 is a prohibition. Neither let the son of the stranger, those are Gentiles that we're going to get to in the next lesson of comfort, verses 6 through 8. But right now, we want the summary in verse 3. Neither let the son of the stranger, those are Gentiles, that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Don't say that anymore in the New Testament era of Jesus Christ. Nor, neither, let the eunuch say, this is a prohibition, Units should not say, and 
bewail themselves and have a self-pity party. Behold, I am a dry tree. And I'm assuming that every parent in here can figure out the dry tree. Maybe you'll need to explain that to your children. I love the plainness of the word of God, but I don't need to explain that any further to you right now. I just want you to know that verse 3 is a prohibition because of the change in religion. We believe in a reformation. We believe in the reformation described as the reformation in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10. That the law and the prophets, including Isaiah, were until John. And since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Everyone is allowed in the New Testament kingdom of Jesus Christ, including these eunuchs. A eunuch is a castrated male for several reasons, often for the harems of kings. Daniel was a eunuch in the palace of the king of Babylon because he reported to the king of eunuchs. And so here we have two groups of people that in the Old Testament couldn't have full membership privileges of the congregation of the Lord or the church of God, the Gentiles and eunuchs. There were Gentiles saved by grace that would worship only Israel's true God in a time coming up. There were eunuchs made so by various reasons and various ways that were saved as well. The first Ethiopian eunuch that we read about in the Bible was Ebedmelech in Jeremiah 38. And it's a great story. And I wanted you to read that chapter last evening. Remember that I am merciful when I send out those preparatory emails. And if you hadn't had any discussion, it was only 22 minutes long if you didn't read any of the extra material. But the story of the first Ethiopian eunuch in the Bible is Ebed-Edmelech who protected Jeremiah under King Zedekiah. It's a great story. And so he was a Gentile and he was a eunuch. So he was doubly rejected from the church of God. The verse is a prohibition here looking at verse 3, and I hope you can see that. Neither opens the verse and neither closes out the verse that the Gentiles shouldn't bewail their situation and the eunuchs shouldn't bewail their situation because God has something in store for Gentiles and eunuchs that was coming in the future. And it was near my salvation and my righteousness to be revealed. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ has saved all kinds of all men. Praise the Lord for that. It's a wonderful doctrine to know and to understand. Instead of worrying about men with injured testicles, damaged in his stones, let's think of God's inclusion. What a wonderful blessing it is. The depth of mercy and the depth of the mystery of God including Gentiles. When you read Ephesians 2, and this was suggested last evening, Ephesians 2.11, all the way through 3.13, they are wonderful verses about Paul's exceptional understanding of a great mystery. And that great mystery is that after 1,500 years of only dealing with the biological descendants of Abraham, he was going to deal with Gentiles. And Paul said, God's given me special understanding of this new situation, and for good reason, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. So here's a Jew running around the Gentile world 
preaching that the Gentiles were equal heirs of the kingdom of God along with the Jews. That's tremendous news, brethren. None of us would qualify in the kingdom of God were it not for this prophecy of what was going to happen in the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, our leader and our commander. Never let anyone alter our church from its New Testament standard of total inclusion of all kinds of men. I gave you these verses last evening, but never forget them. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And I gave it to you before last night as well, if you remember. Colossians chapter 3 has it said a different way. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. The closest one word definition for a Scythian is a Russian. Because that's Scythia, European and Asiatic Russia. But there, there's no difference in the kingdom of God and never let our church change from that. We want to fulfill this special prophecy. We in this church are always going to ignore, and we may even give greater honor to either sex, any caste, country, culture, color, rank, anatomy, education, employment, finances, intellect, or otherwise. Never let there be a difference in this house. This is a house of prayer for all people. As verse 7 tells us. But we're at verse 3 getting the summary of the lesson. By God's special favor, so I'll repeat it again. Messiah's church was for all people, as the last part of verse 7 says so clearly. For mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Instead of thinking about someone else that's different from you and why they're included, you should be thinking, I wouldn't be included because you wouldn't be included. You're Gentiles that are looking at me. I don't know of very many cases meeting the other qualification. But you Gentiles would not be included. But you are because of this prophecy. This prophecy should excite your soul. Those strangers were kept at a distance. There was the court of the Gentiles even in Paul's day because Paul was seen in the court of the Gentiles with some men from Ephesus that all the Jews knew were not Jews. And then when Paul went in to pay his vow in the inner court of the temple, they accused him of bringing Gentiles in, which he had not done. It was a serious matter, but the Lord's put that all away. His righteousness, our, our leader and our commander, wants all of us in. I hope you love Philip the Evangelist, full of the Holy Ghost, never hesitating to baptize a double reject in Acts chapter 8. And I say that with all loving respect. One of the top 20 men I want to meet in the Bible is the Ethiopian eunuch, and to find out what he was doing in Jerusalem for to worship. 
before he even met Philip and how he got his hands on Isaiah 53 and why he was reading it and what kind of zeal he had before he even met Philip. The Lord had already done a wonderful work in that man. I appreciate the young sister that texted last evening of her excitement about what Philip did for a double reject. The Ethiopian eunuch was both a stranger, meaning he was a Gentile, and he was a eunuch, so he was wounded in his stones. But Philip baptized him, and he went on his way rejoicing back to Ethiopia. Praise the Lord. Verse 4, For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Any eunuch in the world... When the New Testament came around that had this kind of character and conduct, God was on his side. And God was going to open the gates of heaven to him. The gates of heaven on earth. The gates of Mount Zion. And invite him in. Even unto them, verse 5, will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. Oh, you eunuchs, don't worry that you can't father a family. Don't worry that you don't have children and children's children. Don't let that bother you. I'm going to give you a place in my house. They're not going to keep you in the court of the Gentiles. They're not going to keep you outside the temple courts altogether. You're going to be invited in and have a place in the New Testament church and kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give you a name better than of having a family. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. How about the Son of God. How about eunuchs being made the Son of God that'll never be cut off, never changed. It's the greatest name and title given to Jesus, the Son of God. And so it's given to us as being joint heirs together with Christ of the universe. It'll never be cut off. It's an everlasting name. I love the Word of God. I love these verses. I hope you love them. Even unto them, even to those eunuchs, verse 5, I will have a place in my house and within my walls. You'll be right with me in, on the inside. You'll be in the inner circle, not the outer circle. Now we come to the third lesson. And it's comfort to Gentiles, just like that, but it's for us this time. Verses 6 through 8. Also, the sons of the stranger... Notice back there in verse 3, we got a summary. In verse 3 was a summary of strangers and eunuchs in that order. Then we got a fuller explanation of eunuchs first, verses 4 and 5, and now Gentiles in verse 6. Also, the, the sons of the stranger that joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Amen and amen. Wonderful words here. I hope that you notice when the Lord describes the character of these eunuchs and these Gentiles, he says, they have joined himself to the Lord. Back there in verse 3. Joined himself to the Lord. And then in verse 4, these eunuchs kept his Sabbaths, 
synecdoche for the worship of God, and they chose the things that pleased God, a godly, holy lifestyle, and they took hold of God's covenant, which were his promises for proper behavior. And it describes the Gentiles the same way in verse 6. They joined themselves to the Lord. Out of all the gods and religions of the world, they chose Jehovah and his monotheistic religion to serve that God in the middle of verse 6 and to love the name of the Lord to love the name of God, Jehovah, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taking hold of my covenant. Notice, the description is very careful of the worship of God, the conduct of our lives, that we've turned to the one true and living God named Jehovah, and we love his name. Because God measures by character. God measures by conduct. He does not measure any other way. He doesn't care about your anatomy. Do you know what I mean? I'm referring to eunuchs. He doesn't care about your nation of origin or your race, color. He doesn't care about intellect, economics, finance, culture, what caste you might be in, in some nation. He cares about your character and your conduct, and that's a description of the elect of God in these verses. Verse 7, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. I'm going to bring the Gentiles. They're not going to be cast down because they're second-class citizens in the church or kingdom of God. I'm going to fill them with, they're going to be joyful in my house of prayer. And we have a joyful church. And the joy was shown and shared on Wednesday evening. And we want our church to be joyful. Let's fulfill this verse. Let's be joyful, thankful Gentiles that have been brought in by the Lord Jesus Christ into the New Testament kingdom of the Son of God. I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices. Remember, an Old Testament prophet uses Old Testament terminology for New Testament worship. Because we know this is New Testament. Because it didn't happen till the New Testament. It didn't happen till the Apostle Paul. So he's using Old Testament terminology for New Testament practices because if he'd have used New Testament terminology for New Testament practices, not a person would have understood him and he wouldn't have understood anything at all. This is synecdoches from Old Testament worship for all of the New Testament worship and there's going to be joy in the house of God for Gentiles and it is found in Romans chapter 15 verses 7 through 13 our prophecy after prophecy after prophecy listed one verse at a time by the apostle Paul of the joy of Gentiles in the church of Jesus Christ their burnt offerings and their sacrifices are the sacrifices of Gentiles acceptable to God in the New Testament 1 Peter 2:5 says that our sacrifices are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ our great high priest that makes our worship acceptable to God. Brethren, rejoice with me. These are wonderful prophecies. We would be on the outside looking in. We would be having pity parties for ourselves if we were still Gentiles and cast out and called strangers. He's a stranger. Keep him outside. We're fellow citizens with the saints now, as the Bible tells us. We're part of the family of God that's named in heaven and in earth. Thank you, blessed God, for all these blessings. Notice the character of these Gentiles. Let's make sure we have the character of verse 6 so that we can enjoy the blessings of verse 7. For mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. All the Gentiles of every kind are going to be able to come in 
Every one of their sacrifices are equally acceptable to God. And they should be full of joy no matter where you're from. No matter anything about your past, no anything about your genes, no matter anything about your skin, nothing of that matters. And it, be, it never let it matter in this church. And you young men never let it matter in this church. That is an order from heaven by our leader and our commander. If anything, let's show greater honor. I thank God that by his mercy, if there are three races, did you hear me? If there are three races, that all three are represented in our church, and it thrills me. And I wish there were more of all three. But we will never play a game and make them a hobby horse like the World Redemption Center did in Greenville. It's never a game to us. We want true converts of any source, any origin, to make up the church of God in this place. Help me keep it that way. Thank you, Lord, for such wonderful things. Mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Verse 8 says, The Lord God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel. Remember, he had to pull the Jews back together to get the church rebuilt back in Jerusalem. Yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered to him. In addition to me getting the Jews back together, which were the foundation of the church, I'm going to get the Gentiles from all over. Jesus would put it this way in John 10, verse 16. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. He was referring to the Jewish fold of the Jewish church. I have a lot of sheep that are out there among the Gentiles, and I'm going to bring them in. And that had been prophesied by him, for him, of him, by Jacob on his deathbed in Genesis 49 and verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, until Shiloh come. Who's Shiloh? He's our leader and commander. Who's our leader and commander? The Messiah. Who's the Messiah? The Christ of God. Who's the Christ of God? Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior, the virgin-born son of David. Praise the Lord. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come, and to him shall the gathering of the people be. He's going to gather all the people together, those that are near and those that are afar off. Oh, we could spend more time, but I have made a commitment, and by the grace of God, I've lived up to my commitment of one chapter per sermon. I would love to dig into more details than I have in my outline, and you can look at that later. Let's get to the last lesson of this chapter. The time is running on us. There's only one other place that I hate time as much as in the pulpit, and that's at the desk. It is amazing how much time can fly away when you're lost, not in space, in Scripture. It's wonderful. Yesterday was horrible. Uh, wonderful and horrible. How is it wonderful and how is it horrible? While you're in it, it's wonderful. When you look at the clock, it's terrible. It's horrible. Let's go to the last lesson. It's in verses 9 through 12, and it's drastically different. Verse 9. Here we go, Isaiah 56, 9. All ye beasts of the field, come to devour. Yea, all ye beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. 
and they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his gain from his quarter. Come ye, say they, I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow shall be as this day, and much more abundant. Amen and amen to the words of the living God and his indictment of lazy, not vigilant pastors. Verse 8, I mean verse 9, excuse me. Isaiah 56 and verse 9, the fourth lesson. It's a warning of Israel's ruin and an identification of one of the main problems, and that's a lazy ministry. Look at verse 9. All ye beasts of the field come to devour. Yea, all ye beasts in the forest. This is a drastic change. But this change right here, and everybody wants to take these four verses and stick them on to the beginning of chapter 57, and I understand, but I reject it because we trust the providence of God in preserving his words to us the way he has preserved them to us. Because there is a division between 8 and 9, and it's pretty drastic. And verses 9 through 12 certainly introduce us to chapter 57. But I don't fault the Lord that three verses in chapter 52 introduce chapter 53. And they certainly do. And they appear to belong to chapter 53 in content. But I trust the Lord. I look at it as an appetizer. I look at it as the Almighty God, the Holy Spirit that moved upon the face of the waters, knowing the chapter divisions of the Bible in advance, gave me an appetizer and a teaser at the end of 52, about chapter 53. I find ways to delight in every aspect of God's words. And I wish that you would with me, and I believe you do with me. It is called Believing Bible Study. That everything is exactly what God wants us to have. And so we look for what he may have intended by it. And to me, it's a teaser. I've got a little teaser. A teaser is something to excite you and get your interest for chapter 57. And the teaser is these last four verses. Because it's different. I mean, look at all the comfort that we had in verses 3 through 8. The comfort of eunuchs and Gentiles being accepted and having a place in God's house. But then... It's God calling the beasts of the field to come and devour. That's Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to come and devour the Jewish church. Oh, what a terrible line. But it was true, and it came to pass. And if you would have read some of the alternative passages last night, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 13... Ezekiel 34, and there's more chapters in Ezekiel that you could read about the ministry, where God condemns the ministry. And so here comes a blast, and here we go, the 50s of Isaiah. You love the 50s of Isaiah? The first half are precious and wonderful with comfort. The second half is full of warnings and coming judgment, and a description and indictment of the sins of the people which will be the second service today from chapter 57. All ye beasts of the field come to devour. This is not difficult here. It's not a unique use of words because words are used elsewhere about animals being come to devour Israel as representative and metaphorical similitudes. Remember, prophets use similitudes to describe the Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans coming. 
But now notice, all ye beasts, come ahead. Come ahead and devour the nation because the watchdogs are worthless there. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. The, wa- <clears throat> the reason you get a watchdog is so that anyone coming near your property with his superior sense of hearing and his superior sense of smell, and who knows what other senses are superior, he's able to detect slight rustling in the grass or the presence of a new odor, and he barks. And that bark tips you off that you are at risk. And that's what preachers are supposed to do. They're supposed to be vigilant and to identify the character of God and the character of the people and correct the one, the latter, until they match the former. I'll show you what a preacher is supposed to do. I can't preach it until next Sunday. If I'm alive then. Look at chapter 58 and verse 1. It's the first verse of Isaiah 58. This is a description of real preachers. Cry aloud. Spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet. And show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. And in other places, there would be the warning that nations are coming to destroy, which Isaiah has been doing through these chapters that we've read so far. Now we're back to Isaiah 56 and verse 10. God, through the prophet, is saying, His, that is Israel's watchmen, the ones that they have set up, the pastors, the prophets, the priests. Yes, pastors is used in the Old Testament. Pastors, prof, pastor is just a shepherd. Whenever you read the word shepherd, you're reading the word pastor. His watchmen, his pastors, his prophets, his priests are blind. They don't see anything. They don't see that the times are a-changing. They don't see the rise of the mighty power on the Euphrates. They don't see the Babylonian kingdom coming. They don't remember all the warnings. They're blind. They are all ignorant. They don't know the prophecies. They don't know that it's already been described who was going to come. They are all dumb dogs, the whole ministerial association. You know, Isaiah ordinarily is considered a prophet that wrote beautifully. But sometimes he gets bold. And here he's bold. He is saying the entire ministerial association are all dumb dogs. Dumb, meaning not lacking in intelligence like dogs are, but dumb, unable to bark, unable to speak, unable to make a noise of any profit for the people. A watchdog is a wonderful thing to have. If there's any fear of danger, they can warn you of it. All dumb dogs. Let me tell you something about Isaiah. In Romans chapter 10, because of this, this idea about Isaiah. Isaiah is just this gentle man. Jeremiah is tough. Ezekiel's worse. And there's reasons for that thinking, but it's all wrong. But Paul said in Romans chapter 10, Isaiah is very bold and saith. <laughs> he said that describing Isaiah and one of his prophecies about the election being kind of small in Israel. He says... Isaiah is very bold. Just one. It's the word of God. Amen. I love that about Isaiah. 
He's very bold. And right here, I love the way he addresses the ministerial association. And so whenever in this pulpit names come flying out, whether it be Billy Graham or Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn or Rodney Howard Brown, yeah, we can use verse 10. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. I remember at the bank that the bank officers would refer to the ministry as a nonprofit profession. And what they meant was that ministers are like this, described here, because there's no profit motive to drive them with the ambition that drove us at the bank. And it was my pleasure to tell the highest officers of that bank that I was leaving for this profitable profession and I hope that I'm driven by a higher cause than making more on the next quarterly statement of a bank in the United States of America. But I, I want you to be thinking about how people, you know, some go to college and they don't want to work very hard. So they thumb through the college handbook and they find the ministry. Oh, neat. Hey, I show up for an hour on Sundays. Maybe I sit in a closet for an hour on Saturdays to hear women tell me about their lusts. And so they choose to be a Catholic priest. Maybe they like boys. That gives them a third reason to be a Catholic priest. They're all dumb dogs. They don't bark. They don't want to be vigilant. They don't want to study in God's word. The Bible says study in God's word is to be a workman because it's work going back and forth here and there, looking here, checking this, this word, this phrase. What's this connection? By the grace of God, you have a dog. And he's not dumb in the sense of he can make a loud noise. His watchmen are blind. These are the prophets, the priests, and the pastors. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. They're no good at warning the nation that their character is going to bring the judgment of the Chaldeans and the judgment this time will be terrible because of Manasseh's terrible sins and they will be hauled off and their princes and their sons made eunuchs in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. Yea, let's just take it a step further about this ministerial association. They are greedy dogs which can never have enough. They want more and more for their own enjoyment. And they are shepherds that cannot understand. They don't know their sheep. They don't know the nature of being a shepherd. They don't know the master shepherd. They don't know the rules of a shepherd. They don't care about still waters and green feet pastures. They all look to their own way. Everyone for his gain from his quarter. For those in this church that have read the excellent book, 50 Years in the Church of Rome, by a converted priest... Charles Chinaque, 50 years in that church, and he converted and took a 2,000-member Catholic church in Chicago out of the Catholic church. And Abraham Lincoln was his attorney. It's an excellent book. And it describes these men right here, drunk all the time, because they had so much wine for their masses and remember, the laity could not touch the wine until just the last few years when a few of them were allowed to do so. But the priest drank it all. And I, I got to get off him. It's just an example. 
And I hope that you're able to look at this and realize that the ministerial association today is not much different. Joel Osteen doesn't warn anyone of anything, and yet he's considered America's pastor. How's he a pastor? He's not protecting the sheep by warning them of the beasts of the field and the beasts of the forest that are coming to devour. There's a day of judgment and a day of wrath coming. And I just showed it to you in 2 Peter chapter 3, and it's why we ought to be living a separated lives in this church in our corporate worship and at home in our private lives. They can never have enough, verse 11. They're greedy, they're insatiable for themselves. They all look to their own way. They can't understand. They don't know the word of God. They don't understand anything about the real ministry. They're looking for their own gain. And they're so voluptuous and wanting more and more of their loose, luxurious lifestyle that verse 12 sums them up as saying, Come ye, they say to each other, I will fetch wine and we will fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow shall be as this day and much more abundant. Let's just enjoy this nonprofit profession and let's just make sure that we've got big houses. We're drunk all the time. We're enjoying the good things of life because we've got it made in this nonprofit profession. And the Word of God calls them dogs that do not understand and they cannot understand. They don't know anything about being shepherds. They're sleeping, they're lying down, they're slumbering, they're lazy. And they won't get into the word of God. And so whatever famine there is for the word of God today in America, it's not because of the lack of this. We can buy it for a buck at the dollar store. It's because of ministers like verses 9 through 12 that aren't doing their job in their office and then not doing their job in their pulpit. And not only do I get you from this pulpit, and you will answer for my other visits, I visit you six times a week with a commentary from the book of Proverbs that because there are 915, 500 unique ones, you do not know them all enough yet to say that that's old. I still benefit from reading them and listening to them every day. And I visit you with two or three updates. And those updates are not patting you on the back all the time and telling you that you're wonderful, but they're trying to warn you of dangers in our society and what we need to do as a church and what you need to do as individuals to be protected from those dangers because Jesus Christ is coming and his coming will be in flaming fire with his mighty angels to take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Isaiah 56, an exhortation of godliness in light of the coming of Messiah, in verses 1 and 2, comfort for eunuchs in 3 through 5, comfort for Gentiles in 6 through 8, and a warning about pastors that God was going to judge them, and God is going to judge America, and it will be soon. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.